And Kara just reminded me of what is coming up that I forgot. Um, next Monday, uh, November 6th, is our night of prayer. And so I want to just keep reminding you guys on the first Monday of each month, we're just gathering as a church to pray. So next Monday night, not tomorrow, but next Monday, if you want to come um, here at the church uh, to pray, please do so. Um, okay, but today we are in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And something I've said a couple of times as we have looked at the crucifixion, and now um, it's the same with the resurrection, there's an enemy to God's word when it comes to the crucifixion and now the resurrection. What, what, what is that enemy? Does anybody remember? Familiarity. All right. Familiarity. And um, with the crucifixion, now with the resurrection, um, how many of you know it's easy to become familiar with um, maybe it's a passage of scripture, a verse, all right? Um, a book of the Bible can be very familiar, all right? Well, the, when it comes to the crucifixion and the resurrection, anybody outside of me have heard those a few times, all right? And especially the resurrection. I mean, every Easter we're talking about the resurrection. And so the, the resurrection story, if we're not careful, it can be familiar. Well, I know what the resurrection's about. Jesus came back to life. Okay, let's, I mean, that's a two-minute message, Jim. What do we got to talk? That's the danger. And, and so, so what, what you need to be careful of today is that you're not sitting there going, oh, I know what the resurrection's about. We've heard this this message before, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna think about what we're doing for lunch. Don't shut your mind down. All right, keep your heart open, keep your mind open. Even though this is a very familiar passage, a very familiar account, treat it as if you have never heard it before. Okay. Pretend, if you would that you are these people and you're experiencing the resurrection for the first time. Because what I want to do is I want to hit this from the angle of what the resurrection did. What did it do and how did it impact these people? All right? What did it do for them and what can it... How many of you know the resurrection is still doing things? All right? When Jesus rose from the dead on this day, it didn't stop doing things. It still impacts people today. And my prayer is, is that this, this account, these verses will still impact us today as we look at what the resurrection did. And so I want to look at four things the resurrection did and um, see how it still is doing this for us today. So here's the first thing, what the resurrection did, and it's this. It corroborated the scriptures and shifted belief. The resurrection corroborated the scriptures and it shifted belief. So with your Bible open, if you look with me at John chapter 20, starting with verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Peter, or Simon Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, so let's, let's kind of break apart these few verses here for a second. It says on the first day of the week. What day is that? It was Sunday, all right? Jewish calendar, first day of the week was Sunday, not Monday, all right? So when you see, ever read in, in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, on the first day of the week, it was Sunday. That's why we celebrate um, worship on Sunday. The Jews, because the Sabbath for them was Friday night to Sunday night, or Friday night to Saturday night. For Christians in the church... They began, because of Jesus resurrecting on Sunday, they began to worship on the first day of the week, Sunday. And that's why we still worship on Sunday. And so on this first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still early. Now, I said this last week, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
you're going to realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke include a few other women along with this, this trip, all right? John just says it's Mary Magdalene. Now, remember, last week I said just because you, you, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see that it seems like there's some inconsistencies here, but it really isn't. Remember, last week I said if you have four people observing a, a, a traffic accident, four people are probably going to give you a different account. You're not, a, a police officer is not going to get you know, from witness number one, here's my account, then he interviews witness number two, that account is not going to be word for word the same, will it? It'll be different. Well, same with these guys. When it comes to Scripture, you got to remember two things about Scripture. One is it's a personal testimony. It's a personal eyewitness. This is what Matthew observed, and he remembers. And also, well, three things you got to remember. One, the Scriptures were not, re- it was not like the, the events happened, and they were like writing it down. Okay, it was years later that they wrote the the scriptures. So Matthew would recall, this is what I remember. Same with Mark, Luke, John. But here's the other thing. The last thing we got to remember is that they wrote when they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that brought them to remembrance. Here's what I want you to say. So Matthew, he may have remembered things, but the Holy Spirit speaks to Matthew and says, Matthew, write it this way. Matthew writes it this way. Mark, you saw some things, but I want you to write it this way. Mark writes it this way. Luke, you saw things, but write it this way. John, you saw things, but write it this way. Does that make sense? That's why if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the resurrection and everything, people will say, you see, it's inconsistent. No, it's not. Just different witnesses and the Holy Spirit directing them differently to write. So John, he gets the easy route. He just is like, God just says, the broad strokes, John. Just write the broad strokes. So for him, it's like Mary shows up. But when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see other women there. But for, for John, it was just Mary. All right? But it wasn't. It was actually Mary and other women. Because as we see, if you look down in verse 2 at the end of it, when she says to Peter and John, they have taken the Lord away from the tomb, and we do not know where they put him. So Mary's saying there was other people with me, other women. Okay, And they, they go to the tomb early. And, and their goal, their, 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 their mission was, hey, we're going to go to the tomb. Now that pe- the, the, path, the, 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 the Sabbath is over, the day of rest is done, now we can go do what we need to do. So Sunday morning, they were going to go to the tomb, and they were going to anoint the body again. Now, you got to remember, the stone would have been a huge round stone, and, and the Roman soldiers guarded the tomb, and they would have rolled it in front, and they were probably, Mary and the other women were going to go to the tomb, ask the soldiers, could you roll it away so we can go in and anoint the body? That was what was going to happen. But they show up, the stone's already rolled away. Well, they freak out, at least Mary does. Now, we don't know if the other women went with her and, or they stayed, but all we know is Mary was like, ah, boom, gone. And she runs back to where Peter and John were staying. It, remember, it was the Passover time. They were in Jerusalem. So they, they probably had their own little Airbnb and, and was hanging out. And she goes to where they were staying and she says to them, Hey, the body of Jesus is gone. Look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple. Who was the other disciple? It says the disciple that Jesus loved. Who was that? John. All right. Do you ever wonder why, you know, we've seen this quite a few times. John refers to himself as the other disciple. But he mentions Peter's name. This goes to show you the humility of John. All right. John, in his, in his hum- I believe in his humility, he's like, I'm not worthy enough to put my own name in here. The other disciple. Not even gonna, I'm not even going to name just the other disciple. Just the other disciple. And so Peter and John take off. And it says, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. 
But the other disciple, John, outran Peter. More than likely, John was probably a little bit younger than Peter or just more athletic. But Peter was probably like, gets to the tomb and like, whew, whew, that was a run. But John had already gotten there. He outran Peter. And it says um, both of them were um, running. John outreaches or outruns Peter, and he says he reached to the tomb first. And it says in verse 5, And stooping to look in, meaning when, remember, it was Joseph of Arimathea that carved out the tomb in a, in a boulder, okay, a huge rock. And, and usually the, 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 the entrance would have been, you know, not very big. It wasn't like it was just like, oh, here we go. They had to get down into there, and he looks. Now remember, it says it's dark, so there was no light switch. I'm assuming they had a torch, no flashlight, a torch. And he probably looked in with the torch, and it says he went back out. All right? But look what it says there in verse 5. It says, stooping in, he looked in. He saw the linen clothes lying there. I want you to underline he saw. He saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. John did not go into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes, but he didn't go in. Now, we don't know how big the tomb was, but it would have been very dark, and, and the torch probably only gave out so much light. So he probably looked in, saw the linen clothes, but he says he went back out. Now, the reason why he probably went back out was a Jewish person could not touch anything dead, animal or human, because if they touched a dead body... They were considered unclean for a week, meaning they couldn't hang around nobody. They couldn't go home unclean for a week. I mean, that would really stink, wouldn't it? You couldn't go home to your... Peter's married, and he couldn't go home to his wife. So, but John's like, nope, not going in, and he backs out. But look at Peter. And then verse 6 says, then Simon Peter came following him, and went into the tomb. Peter's just like, get out of the way, John. i got to see this for myself. But isn't that just Peter's personality? Hey, Jesus, tell me to get out of the boat. I'll, I'll walk on water. Get out of the way, Peter. I don't care. I'll touch a body. I'm going in. And Peter goes into the tomb. And so he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes. Underline those words, he saw. So John saw the linen clothes. Peter sees the linen clothes lying there. And it says, In the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. So John looks in, goes back out. Peter looks in, but he stays. And he sees the linen clothes, and he sees the face cloth. And he notices the face cloth is folded up and it's separated. Now, here's a good reason why the, this debunks the, the idea that Jesus' body was stolen. Okay, People will say, well, it was the, 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 the apostles that took the body away, so they would say, see, he rose from the dead. But it also debunks that the Jewish leaders or the Romans stole the body to say, see, he, he didn't rise from the dead. Well, here's the thing. If, if, how many grave robbers are going to go, hey, Bob, just a second, I need to fold the clothes. You steal the body. I... Okay, let's go. No, you're stealing the body. Any thief is going to like, they're not cleaning house. They're stealing it and getting out. A grave robber would have said, grab the body, forget the clothes. In fact, why would they unwrap the body in the first place? They would just take everything. The grave clothes are still there, the wraps, and the face cloth is nicely folded. Tells me, Jesus is like, this is awesome, and I've got some time. I'm just going to fold this up nice and neat and set it aside. So John goes in and sees. Peter goes in and sees. And now look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. Under the, underline those words, he saw. 
Notice now three times in these couple verses, he saw, he saw, he saw. Three English words, saw, S-A-W. Three times we use that English word, saw. And we use that word, saw, as like, hey, I looked at something, I saw something, I, I see it. I, you know, there it is, okay? Here's why it's so important, and I talked about this last week, understanding, and this is a great example here, as to why to know the Greek language is so different from English language. Because as I have explained numerous times, and I said this last week, you got to remember that the Bible was originally written in three different languages, actually. Hebrew, the Old Testament, Aramaic, which is also a, 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 a dialect of Hebrew, but also written in Greek. The majority of the New Testament is written in Greek, okay? And so these three words, English words, saw, one English word, we use the word saw, actually is translated from three different Greek words, not just one. We translate these three different Greek words into one English word, but they're translated from three different Greek words, and that's vitally important because of what they, un what they mean. <clears throat> in verse 5, when it says that John went in and he saw and he came back out, that word saw, our English word saw, is translated from the Greek word blepo, and that word means to glance at or to take notice. John did that. He looked into the tomb, took, he glanced at it, and he came back out. But the second Greek word found in verse 6 with Peter, it's translated, our, our English word saw, it's translated from the Greek word thereo, which means to look carefully, to observe, or to pay attention closely. And that's what Peter did. He didn't just go in and go, oh, there's a grave closing, come out. No, he saw, but then he also noticed the head covering was folded and placed aside. He looked a little more intently, a little more closely. But then the third English word, saw, in verse 8, is translated from the Greek word, edon. And it means to realize or to perceive with intelligent comprehension. That's why when John says, well, if Peter's in there, I'm going to go in there too. And Peter, John looked in the second time. It says, and then he saw and he believed. It changed something inside of him. He, he didn't just perceive with his eyes and go, oh, okay. He perceived with his eyes, and then it opened the eyes of his heart. This is now the aha moment for John, and probably also for Peter. We don't, we don't, he doesn't say it, but we have to assume it was for Peter too. That they both probably looked at it and went, oh, he was right. Because look at verse 9. So it says in verse 8 that John went back in, saw and believed. Verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. What that means is up until this point, they're still not believing it. Jesus had told them time and time and time again, hey, guys, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead. Okay, that sounds great. They told, he told them, just like Jonah, guys. Remember the story in Jonah? You go, okay, I'm going to be like that. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. But I'm going to rise again. Okay. He told them in John chapter 2, guys, listen, um, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And it says that Jesus, the, the, the Jewish leaders are like, dude, it took us 40 years to build this thing. How are you going to build it in three days? And it says in John chapter 2, he wasn't referring to the building, but to his body. Saying, you destroy this temple. For three days it will die. But it will come back to life. Now here's what's interesting in John chapter 2. After Jesus says that, in verse 22 of John chapter 2, it says, When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus spoke. That's what's going on here. Is, is they look now, 
past just a glance, past just intently looking at things, to now comprehending what happened. Now they're looking, and all of a sudden their faith goes, the light bulb just came on. And they're like, Jesus was right. He told us time and time and time again, guys, I'm going to die, but I'm going to resurrect. And, and the scriptures, the Old Testament prophesied about that. And they're like, both the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus are right. And it shifted their belief. They went to the tomb not believing it. Mary goes to the tomb not believing it. But in a matter of a moment, their heart now believes. Now, for you and I today, we do not have the grave clothes in the grave. We, we don't have evidence, physical evidence to look at and go, oh, wow, I believe it. But we do have the account in the word of God. If we believe, you see, this is where it comes back to, if I believe the scriptures to be the word of God, then I believe that Jesus is alive. That was a great spot for an amen. I had two amens. Jesus is alive, and that's what the scriptures tell us. And as I read the scripture, as I, as I allow the scripture to sink in, it shifts my faith. You see, Romans 10, verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. So as I read the word of God, as I hear the word of God, what it begins to do is I, I hear it, it, it shifts my belief. It, it, it starts to shape my faith. It, it, it transforms my faith. It grows my faith. That's why Colossians chapter 3, and this, I, 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 in my own time this morning, as I got up, I was, I've been reading through Colossians, and in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, do not fix your eyes, fix your hearts on the earth, on, the, on these things. He says, set your hearts on things above, on Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, let me ask you, um, if you're seated, are you dead or alive? You're alive. Jesus Christ is alive. You're not getting it. Jesus Christ is alive. He is alive and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the scriptures tell us that. The scripture is what we believe. The scripture is what shifts our faith. And as I believe that Jesus is alive... My faith begins to grow, and it, and, and it shifts, and, and it changes. And as my faith changes, it takes us into point number two, because this is where the shifting of my faith starts to play out. And here's the second thing the resurrection did. It comforted a troubled heart and opened eyes. It comforted a troubled heart and opened eyes. So after Peter and John see in the tomb, in verse 10 it says they went back to their homes. That's all we know. But look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now Mary, she... she Hadn't gone into the tomb yet. She just saw the stone rolled away, and she just put kind of one and one together. She's like, oh, man, if the stones are rolled away, something's got to be wrong with the body. And she didn't go in. She just was like, oh, I got to. And she ran to tell Peter and, Peter and John. Now, we don't know if, if they had gotten to the tomb before Mary. We don't know any of that. But Mary eventually is now at the tomb again. And she's now weeping. She knows the body is gone. Peter and John had to have told her he's gone. But I think he was right about rising. But he's gone. But she's weeping. And now she stoops into the tomb. She takes a look. And she's like, I, I got to see this for myself. And when she looks in, look at verse 12. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at his head and one at his feet. I love the symbolism there. Because if you know your Old Testament, when Moses built the tabernacle, you had the outer court, you had the holy place, you had the holy of holies. And, and the outer court is where the people hung out. The holy place is where the priests did their duties. But in the holy of holies, which is separated by the curtain, only the high priest could go in there and only once a year. And there was one article of furniture in there. Do you know what that article was? The Ark of the Covenant. And the lid of that ark was called the mercy seat. And on that lid, there were two golden ornamental what? Cherubs or angels. One at one end, one at the other. And here you have two angels like the Ark of the Covenant. The presence, because the Ark of the Covenant was always the, the presence of the Lord. And here you have two angels it's almost like one at one end, one at the other, but guess who's not there? The presence of the Lord's not there right now. But they're saying, it's almost like, but he's coming back. But they're seated at the head and at the feet. Now look at what they say to Mary. And they say to her, verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, I'm assuming that because she was in shock. She was heartbroken. Her, 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 her heart was deeply troubled. She was grieving that the sight of two angels didn't even faze her. And they're like, why are you weeping? And she's just like, nothing matters right now. I don't even care your angels. The body's gone. He, he's the one that matters, and he's not here. But I love the... the they don't ask her her name. They don't ask her where are you from. Why are you weeping? Let me ask you a question. You think they know something? What do they know? Jesus is gone. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say that the angels actually say, why are you looking for the dead or the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He has risen. They know Something that Mary does not know. You see, Mary's answer tells her that she went to the tomb. I asked Paula this question, and, and, and it kind of confused her. But what was Mary expecting to see when she went to the tomb? A body. She was expecting a body. She, along with the disciples, did not believe Jesus' words all those times, I'm, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back. She didn't believe it, just like the disciples. And here, when they ask, why are you weeping? They know the answer. But she's like, well, the body's gone. And, and if you know where he's at, just tell me. Why are you weeping? Because they know that Jesus has risen. Now look at verse 14. It says, having said this, she turned around. So now she's going back out the tomb. And she saw... Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus is now standing there. She turns and, and doesn't recognize him. And he even speaks to her and she does... You see, this is where I believe she's so stricken with grief. Her heart is so broken. And it's also, it's dark. And, and she's expecting a body. So she's not expecting Jesus to show up next to her. So she's a, some, this is a, some dude. And she's like, it's the gardener. And, and, and obviously, he's the one who's done this. So I'm going to say, Will you, where, where did you send him? Where did you take him? She doesn't recognize as Jesus. And again, I like what Jesus, why are you weeping? Think Jesus knows something too? Mary, there's no reason to weep. But look what Jesus says to her in verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabboni, I don't know how you say it, which means teacher. 
I like it. it says that she turned. So she was speaking to Jesus, think he was the gardener. And when she says, if you've done something with him, just tell me. And I'm wondering if she turned to walk away. She's like, I'm done. He's not here. I'm leaving. And she's turned, and Jesus just says one word. Mary. And she stops. And she turns back around. And all she can say is, teacher. Why I like that is Jesus didn't rebuke her. He didn't rebuke her for her unbelief. He didn't shame her anyway. He understood her broken heart. He understood her troubled heart. He understood she was grieving. And he lovingly reveals himself by just simply saying, Mary, like, here I am. As soon as Jesus said that, let me ask you, was the eyes of her heart enlightened and opened up? Absolutely. She, in her grief, spiritually, her eyes were shut. Physically, she saw, and she thought she saw a gardener, but her eyes were shut. But as soon as Jesus says, hey, Mary, whoosh, just like the Peter and John, she saw. And it was not just a glance. It was, she saw with comprehension. This is, my, this is my Lord. Let me ask you, in that moment, do you think her heart was troubled any longer? No. It would have been full of joy and peace. Because now she's with her master again. She's with her Savior. You see, and this is the truth for you and I today. You know, as I was putting this message together, I told the elders this morning in our prayer time, I struggled through this passage this week. Usually by Wednesday, after late afternoon, I have my points. This week, Wednesday, I had no points. Really struggling Tuesday, Thursday, I go into Thursday. By Thursday, I want my points and where I can just really flow with the message. 11 o'clock, 11.30, still no points. Now I'm stressing a little bit. Um, I felt like a writer with writer's block. But there was one thing that kind of jumped out at me, but it, it, was, it wasn't enough to make a, a whole message out of it. But in verse 1, it says that Mary came to the tomb early while it was dark. It just wasn't dark physically. It was dark spiritually for her. There was a darkness inside of her. Her heart was broken. Her heart was troubled. Let me ask you, do you ever feel like it's dark sometimes? Do you ever just wake up sometimes and you watch the news and does it just seem like just a troubled heart just... <sighs> falls on you. It's easy, isn't it? When you're going through the storms, when you're going through the trials, the pain in life, man, you go through that dark night of the soul. And that's a hard place to be sometimes. And when you're going through that dark night of the soul, when you're, when you're experiencing that troubled heart, sometimes what happens is we, we, we try to go to the wrong things to bring the light to relieve the darkness, to relieve the trouble. And those things don't work. This is why it's so important to remember. Now I'm going to set you up. It's a great spot for an amen here. Jesus is alive. And that's why that's important is this. This resurrection opened her eyes and calmed her heart. This morning... Um, like I said, when Paula's, when, I, when I'm, we're not sleeping, sometimes I can, I, 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 I get anxious in the night. Not anxious, but I don't have my, my partner. I'm not, I, I don't have anything to lay up against. I've actually taken her pillow, tucked it up underneath me so I can lay on it. But at 2.30 this morning, you know, I, that 56-year-old bladder kicks in. So I get up and go back to bed at 2.30. I went to bed about 10 or 10.30 last night, and after four hours of sleep at 2.30, it's like a power nap. And I'm laying there, and I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So I lay there, lay there, lay there, 3.30 rolls around, 
Paula is six hours ahead, so I can get my phone. I'm like, hey, have you had your coffee yet? Because, man, I'm not sleeping. And she's like, oh, babe, I'm sorry, you know. So I, you know, I go, try to go back to sleep, 3.30, oh, 4 o'clock, 4.30. I've been just rolling around. So 4.30, I finally just get out of bed and get on my knees. I'm, I just begin to pray for this morning, pray for you guys, pray for the message. And I'm just kind of thinking about the text and this point specifically. And what I just felt like the Holy Spirit reminded me of, for Mary and Peter and everybody, this was Resurrection Sunday, the morning of the resurrection. But once Jesus rose from the dead, and now that he's alive and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, every single morning is Resurrection Sunday. Because you and I wake up every single morning and with our troubled hearts, with that dark night of the soul, that's why we have to remember on Monday morning, Jesus is alive. On Tuesday morning, Jesus is alive. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every morning you wake up, Jesus is alive. And the reason why that's so important is that when I'm going through that dark night of the soul, when it just seems darkness has invaded me, and I'm going through the storm, I'm going through the trial, I'm going through the, my, man, my heart is troubled. Jesus is with me. He's with me and he goes before me. And I can always remember he is alive. He is my sovereign Lord and he has my life in his hands. And I can trust him with that. I pray, I ask him to change things, I seek his face. He may not answer what I'm praying for. He may do it in a completely different way. I may not see things move. I may not feel things move. But when I don't see my circumstances changing one iota, I can remember Jesus is still alive. And he has me. And that's where I was at 4.30 this morning. Jesus is alive. And Resurrection Sunday is just not Easter Sunday. It is every single day. And when you can remember that, when you set your heart on that, that's why you can remember. You know, Paul prays in Ephesians. You know, I'm just going to read it. I just wrote it down, but I just want to read it. You can just write it down, but it's Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul, Paul says it this way. He says, for this reason... I keep praying for you that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Hope. In the darkness, in that dark night of the soul, there is still hope. And the hope is Jesus is alive. When I'm going through the trial, when I'm going through the storm, when I'm not seeing things, Jesus is alive and I have hope. And that's why we can go back to John chapter 14 when Jesus was at the Last Supper with the disciples. And in the first couple of verses of John chapter 14, Jesus tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he gives them the reason why. Because if you believe in God, believe also in me. He goes, I'm going to, I'm going to be leaving you guys, but when I leave, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, understand, guys, that I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you with me. And you will be with me forever. On this side of heaven, Jesus makes it very clear in, during, the, Passover, during um, the Passover meal when he says, guys, listen, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But I've overcome the world. And on this side of heaven, we need to always remind ourselves we're going to have trouble. And sometimes that trouble's hard. Sometimes that trouble heart just sinks in. And, and we watch the news. We, we, we talk to friends. We, we, things just come at us from every angle, from all sides. And the heart gets heavy. And that dark night of the soul gets hard. But when I know that Jesus is alive, when I know that he is resurrected from the dead, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, I know he has me. And on this side of heaven, I'm going to go through trouble. But here's what I do know. One of these days, he's coming for me. And he's going to come for me one of two ways. Either he's going to say, give me back my breath, or he's going to rapture me out. And if he says, give me back my breath, that's okay, because this body of death is going to be laid aside. And man, I'm, I can't wait till this body of death is done. I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of, 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 of 
of just feeling the weight of the world. I'm tired of wrestling with the flesh. I'm tired of it. And I'm just like, you know, God, if you wanted to check me out, I'm okay. Because I think my family will be okay. But I'm still praying, how about a rapture? Man, Jesus, just get us out of here. Just take us all home. Because this world is falling apart. But I have to keep reminding myself, in this world, we will have trouble. We will have a, it will hit us. But you know what? I got to be, I don't want to have a troubled heart. So I'm going to fix my eyes on who Christ is and that he is resurrected, that he is alive, and he knows what's going on in my life. And until that day, I'm going to keep trusting him. I'm going to keep believing in him. I'm going to keep letting him be God in my life. And then I know one day he's coming back for me. You see, that's the hope, of we, that's the hope that we have. And that's what the resurrection did. You know, I like... I just like the fact that we can just keep trusting him. Here's the third thing. Here's what the third thing the the resurrection did, and it's this. It confirmed that the work of justification was accomplished. The The resurrection confirms that the work of justification has been accomplished. Because if you look at verse 17 now, so Jesus is still, still talking to, to, to Mary, and he says to her in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, there's a, I don't think we really understand or really can know what he means by not cling to me. There's, there's a couple of, of trains of thought. One is because he hasn't ascended to the, the Father yet, that, that there's something that maybe his body isn't allowing her to cling to him or something like that. But it could also be that she's wanting to cling to him in a selfish sense. Like, no, I'm not letting you go, dude. You're, you're here. You're not leaving. You're, you're staying right here with me. And what she, what she doesn't understand is Jesus has something so much better. He's like, he's, he, if I don't go, the spirit can't come. That's what he told the disciples. He's like, but I'm going to send the helper and he's going to do something that I can't. So he's like, don't cling to me, Mary. Don't cling to me. But here's what I need you to do. He's like, don't cling to me, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. You see, Jesus, by saying that, has just said the relationship between you and the father has changed. You see, before, as Jews, they lived under the the umbrella of Mount Sinai with Moses, okay? Under Mount Sinai, it was, hey, you obey my law perfectly, and if you don't, my wrath is coming down. And that's the the fear that the Jews always had. God, to them, it wasn't a father relationship. It was God, fear him and obey him all the time. Now he's like, oh, guess what? I'm going to go to my father, and he's your father. My God is your God. And the reason is, is because what Jesus did through his death and resurrection, it changed everything. In fact, if you, this verse is going to be coming up, Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. It says, God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. You see, this is, these are words that, that, that sometimes we get lost in, like justification. That's, that's a big churchy word, okay? Justification simply means this. To cause someone to be right in a right relationship with someone else. That's what justification is. So when you read the words justification or justified, it simply means that Jesus brought you into a different relationship with God. All right? That, that, that when we... Actually, pop quiz. Anybody want to take pop quiz? No takers? Okay. Then, then tell me just, just if you can answer this. What is our default, the Bible tells us, what is our default spiritual condition? Sinner. Man, see? Pop quiz. You guys can take it. You just answer it that quick. We are sinners. Bible, John chapter 3 says we are all sinners, and there's no one righteous before God. Okay? That's your relationship. So because we are sinners, give me the answer. Because we are sinners, what does it do? with us and God. You guys are good, 
Okay? That you answer those helps me believe that, that I'm teaching you well, that you're learning in, in Sunday school classes. We are default sinners, and our sin separates us from God. And the Bible makes it very clear. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. Because of our sin and our sinful condition, there's enmity between us and God. There's no friendship. We are, the Bible, Paul tells it that we are enemies in our thinking toward God. All right? So there's no relationship with God. There's no hope, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, there's no hope of having God because of being a sinner. That's our condition, okay? That's what happens because of sin. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, when he rose from the grave, he has basically said, justification is done. It is done. And that's why in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though, if, there are, if, there's, if there is any one verse that you need to memorize, it is this one. Because what that says in such a short verse is this. If you have faith and you believe in Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross and that he rose from the dead, that you believe that you are a sinner, that you've come to the place you say, Jesus, I accept you as my Savior, you are justified. Meaning Jesus has brought you into a new relationship with God. You are justified before God, made right before God, in a right relationship with God, and you have peace with God. No more enmity, no more anger, no more wrath. Peace. A, a child-father relationship. You are now brought into the fold of God's family. When you have faith in Christ, the relationship with God changes. So today, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are completely justified because of his resurrection. It, it announces every single day. Anybody other than me, sometimes you just feel like, maybe I've lost it. You just feel like, man, I've messed up too many. Because the enemy is really good at convincing you you're not saved. And you just kind of have that little thought in the back of your head. And man, how do, how do I know? How do you know? Jesus is alive. That's how you know. He's alive, and because he's alive, because he, res he rose from the dead, he declares justification is complete. And if you know me by faith, he declares, as Paul declares, by faith in Jesus, you have peace with God, and that peace never leaves. It is not like, well, you're good today, but man, you blow it on Monday. No peace. No. You have peace with God. But today, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've never asked him into your life, you've never confessed that you are a sinner, you don't have peace with God. You are still at enmity with God. You are still separated from God. And if you die, as Jesus says in, in, in the book of John, if you die in your sins, die apart from him, you will be separated from God for all eternity. That's why you don't have a second chance after death. But now is the day of salvation, as Paul tells us in Corinthians. And so if you don't know Christ as your Savior, today is that day to come to that place where you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I need you. I need you as my Savior. Come into my life and save me. Be my Savior. And then lastly, here's the fourth thing the resurrection did. It conveyed the importance and value of women. Now, I know this point kind of seems like it just goes off in the left field, but trust me, this is a great point. The resurrection conveys the importance and value of women. And so look at, again, he tells Mary, I want you to go to my brothers, and this is what you are to say to them. And then in verse 18, it says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, that would have been the apostles, the, the remaining 11, okay? Announced to them, I have seen the Lord, and this is what he has said. And he said all the things that he told her to say. Now, why is that significant? Think about this for a moment. Let's, in these days, women were insignificant. 
They had no standing. They were second-class citizens. A message from a woman was never heard by a man. The religious leaders treated women poorly back then. I sat and thought about this. And I, I read this. I studied this. And I, and, I, and I just thought, you know, if there would have been any person that Jesus would have appeared to first, wouldn't it have been Peter and John? Because think about it. Peter was the pillar of the disciples. He, he, he was like, you're Cephas, and I'm going to call you Peter now, Jesus says, because you're going to be the rock. And on you, Peter, my rock, I'm going to build my church. That's pretty significant. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. John was the one when he was at the cross, standing next to Jesus' mom. Jesus on the cross looks at Peter, or John and says, I, I want you to be the spiritual leader of my mom and take care of her. Take her home. And that's what John did. He became the caretaker of his mom. Peter and John were part of the, the inner circle of the group, James, Peter, James, and John. They went everywhere with Jesus. They, they, were, they were the secret. If there would have been anybody, those two, the moment they showed up to the tomb, Jesus could have, poof, hey guys, didn't I tell you? Now I've got a message for you. But he doesn't. The first person he shows himself to, a woman. I sat and thought, man, if anybody would have been shown, it would have been Peter and Paul or Peter and John. But it wasn't. It was a woman. Which just goes to show that Jesus, his ministry and his word sees the importance and value of women. In Jesus' time, again, women were second-class citizens. If your husband wanted a divorce for any reason, you could get it. As a woman that was divorced or widowed, you were poor. You didn't go down to the local Walmart and get a job. You had no hope. You were treated miserably by, by society, by men in those days, but not Jesus. Jesus treated women with dignity. He saw the importance in a woman and the value in women. And that is so important to understand. Because in our society today, people deride the Bible and Christianity and say that it oppresses women. Especially Liberal feminists. Liberal feminists, I mean, they will, they will shout it at, at the top of the, the mountains. The Bible is nothing but full of male chauvinists. And it just creates a, a, a masculine, you know, power struggle. And, and, it, and it, it puts women down. It keeps women just in a submissive state. And, and, and they, they hate the Bible. But yet, in the same tone... They will sit there and say, well, the Bible is horrible. Christianity is horrible because of what it does to women. But yet we'll sit there and say that Islam is loving and peaceful. Now, here's the reality. Here, here's some truths. The sad, unfortunate reality is this. There are Christian men, Christian leaders, and churches that do not know what the Bible has to really say about women. They take a couple verses out of context to use it as a power play for them to keep women down, to keep women in a submissive, hey, this is what you're supposed to be like. But the reality is Jesus and his word elevates women. It, it shows and, and puts high, high value on women and importance on women. Now, the truth is, yes, the Bible does have roles, all right? Roles in the church and roles in marriage, okay? Understand that. In the church, the roles are simply this. The primary leaders of the church, pastor and elders, are to be men. That a woman 
is not to be a pastor or an elder, but a woman can serve and do anything else in the church and have great importance and value doing it. But for some reason, got to remember, even though Paul wrote these things as a man, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when he writes 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, and he's writing these things, when you read it, you're like, wow, he was a male chauvinist because he's like, only men can be the leaders in the church. Paul didn't write that because that's how Paul felt. Paul wrote that because inspired by the Holy Spirit, God says, this is how my church will operate. Even when you read in um, 1 or 2 Timothy, when Paul says that in the church that a woman is not allowed to speak, again, people will take that and go, in, in some churches, a woman can't say nothing. Not allowed. Not to say anything in the church. That is not what that is saying. When Paul talks about that a woman is not allowed to speak and have authority over a man, it's what I'm doing right now. That, that a woman cannot have the mantle of pastor, only a man can. And a woman cannot, because she can't have the mantle of pastor, doesn't have the authority to preach and proclaim. She can teach and all that. But when the congregation is together like this, the pastor or an elder who is a man, well, not just, it, 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 I, let me say not just an elder because Devon preaches and he's not an elder. But Devon is a man. and He's allowed to do that. The only reason is, is not because Paul was a male chauvinist. We do not put just men as elders and pastors and only let men speak because we are male chauvinists and trying to keep women down. It is because God has created roles. Roles in a church do not, in no way, shape, or form, devalue a woman or make her to be any less important. Because there are things that women do in this church that I could never do. Because there are things that a woman can do is so much better than a man. It's just that in this role right here, it is to be for a man. But women, ladies, listen to me. Here at Harvest Woodhall, you are valued. And you are important. And you are deeply loved. And as elders, we will always have your back. We will always elevate you. We will always believe in you. We will always, I mean, find you important and valuable. Because we love you and you are loved deeply in this church. Because we want to be like Jesus. Jesus valued women. He found them highly important. And if he chose Mary to be the first person to reveal himself to. There had to been something there that he just like, Mary, you are so important that I need to use you. But that's what the, that's what the resurrection did. It did those four things. And I hope today that your heart's a little, a little encouraged. Because I know some of you, you're experiencing that dark night of the soul. I know some of you, you have that troubled heart. And I pray today that you can walk out of here with that, with that faith a little stronger. I hope you can walk out of here knowing that Jesus is. Let me back up. We're going to hit this ramp together. We can walk out of here knowing that Jesus is alive. And if I know he is alive, he has my best. Amen. Why don't we all stand and close in a word of prayer? Father, we are grateful that you love us, you, you care for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you are alive today. You, you died and you rose from the dead. The enemy thought he had you and thought he, 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 he put you down. But you put him down and you put down death. And through your resurrection, it declares that we are justified through faith and we are in perfect harmony with God through you. 
We thank you that we have a great relationship, a perfect relationship with God because of what you've done for us. And Father, I just want to pray for everyone in here going through the storm today. Lord, you know every heart. and You know that, Lord, sometimes it's easy to put on our church face and we put on the, the, the pretend happy face when inside we're dying. Inside the dark night of the soul, it, it, just, it just overwhelms us. Lord, I want to pray for everyone who's experiencing that troubled heart today, who's experiencing that dark night of the soul. And I pray that your word would be that anchor to their soul. And I pray that your word would give them faith to know that, Jesus, you are alive and that you are our sovereign Lord and you are watching over us. You are with us and never will leave us nor forsake us. And so we thank you, Jesus, for being alive. We thank you for loving us. Lord, I want to say thank you for the great women in this church. I want to say thank you for their faithfulness, for their dedication, for how important and how valuable they are. Lord, I know this ministry would not be standing and running and doing if it was not for the women in this church. So I thank you and praise you for them, Lord. And we give you all the glory today and just, just praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.